ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 beautiful people, how's it going? Hope you're all doing well wherever you are in the world. This week on the Ascend podcast is a conversation with the man and the legend himself, Anthony Peake. If you're not familiar with this podcast or maybe you're just new, a new listener, which I know a few guy, guys, a few of you guys out there are, Anthony Peake is somebody who I've spoke to three or four times now on the podcast and every single time we get together, it goes all over the place. We really do dive deep down the rabbit hole. We talk about the nature of reality, simulation theory, deja vu, DMT, the pineal gland, and so much more. We always dive into the biggest mysteries. And Anthony is an incredible author. He's the author of many best-selling books and titles, The Out-of-Body Experience, The Infinite Minefield, The Immortal Mind, and Opening Up the Doors of Perception. He's also wrote many other great books. And as always, this conversation is one of them where we dive really deep and we go all over the place and we ask some very interesting conversations. But what's really interesting about this one, as you know, I have to edit these conversations. I have to sort of clean them up and make sure that the audios are cool for you guys. And it's the process of me doing that. I have to sort of listen back to my own voice. And what's really interesting when I do this, it's sort of a process itself of sort of observing my old self. But even this conversation in general was recorded at the Breaking Convention. I think it was about three or four months ago now because I backdated a lot of podcasts. But looking back at the way that I presented myself, the way that I spoke, the way that I said certain pieces of information, looking back, it really makes a sort of cringe cringe at myself, if that makes sense. And it's not a bad thing, it's just maybe a bit of realisation I had was that looking back how far I've come in such a short period of time. And I don't think we realise in our lives how far we are evolving in in sort of these short spams of time. I mean, this was only just three or four months ago and scientists talk about how our bodies, from a biological perspective, are constantly changing and evolving. Like they say that our whole cells... And the bone structure in our body regenerates after a certain period of time, after a certain amount of years. But not only that, what I've realised is that our minds are evolving and I think our minds in a way sometimes evolve faster than our bodies. And I think at times, um, from my own perspective, I forget to look back and think how far I've come. I mean, like I said, this wasn't that long ago, this conversation was recorded and I feel like as a person, the way I um, speak, the way I put information across, the way the, the way I have an understanding about certain topics changes so, so fast. And it was just really funny looking back anyway and sort of cringing at myself, but at the same time, trying to be grateful for how far that I've come in such a short period of time. So all I'm saying is just 
reminder to myself is to be grateful for where you're at and be grateful for how far you've come. So anyway, guys, I just wanted to mention as well that I'm really excited now to to um, announce the launch of the Ascend podcast retreat. As I mentioned in the past, this is something that is going to be such a beautiful and an experience that you're never, ever going to forget. It's going to be basically what I've always wanted to do is create an environment where I can get some like-minded people together in one spot where we can really sort of do some deep inner work. We can work together as a group. And we can really have such a fun um, and relaxing time, chilling out, hanging out, listening to music and stuff. While 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 doing that, doing some really interesting mindful practice, mindfulness practices like yoga, meditation, guided meditations, and everything else in between. I do have a lot of interesting surprises for you as well, which I don't want to touch on. I think it'll be best if the left is a surprise and some of the some of the things that are and activities that I want us to do as a group. I think it really is going to be profound and something very special. So the, the retreat has now been launched for the last eight hours and four places have already gone because what I had to do is I had to um, sort of respect the patrons who support the podcast and I wanted to give them guys first opportunity. So currently the four places have, have already gone. So I would recommend if you guys want to do, if you do feel in your heart that you, this is something that you want to partake in, I would definitely recommend heading over within the next few days and checking out the page and seeing if this is a fit in your life. There is um, also on there, um, I've created a payment pl- a payment plan because I know obviously a lot of you guys may not be able to afford this straight away, straight away right now and that's absolutely fine, I completely understand that. So there is, just to let you guys know on that page, there is a place where you can leave a deposit and that will secure your, uh, secure your place for the retreat. And it does say on the page as well that you have to pay four, month, four monthly instalments, but this is something that's not fixed and you guys if you guys reach out to me and let me know you can definitely set up a different payment plan maybe with smaller payments where you can sort of pay smaller amounts over a longer period of time the retreat is not is isn't is not till the 1st of september next year so it's going to be from the 1st of september till the 8th of september next year it's going to be seven days of absolute pleasure So if you want to set up a different type of payment plan, just reach out with send us an email and we can sort something out. And all you need to do is leave a deposit and that will secure your place. This is going to be really a cool a cool um, event. I'm really looking forward to getting together with all you beautiful people out there, whoever's going to come. And I know that we're going to have an experience of a lifetime. All the details on the Ascend podcast website. You just have to go to the retreat page. Every single inf- bit of information that you require is all available on that page. If you need, if you want, have any of questions about it, please just reach out, ask me any questions that you want to know. So anyway, I'm looking forward to 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 seeing you guys in the future and also seeing you guys sign up for the retreat. So without further ado. This conversation, like I mentioned, we dive so deep down the rabbit hole. It was unbelievable as always, even though I did look back at myself and cringe a little bit. But it still is a powerful conversation and I know you're going to love it with the legend himself, Anthony Peak. So anyway, enjoy this conversation. Peace out, people. So 
let's do this so okay i'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you for the third time now and as i've told you and i think i've told you this in the past as well the audience always say that you're one of the favorite guests so it's so good to have a conversation with you because i think every single time yeah i think you come on the podcast and you just blow people's minds with this not all your knowledge so i'm really looking forward to this today anyway and i'm glad you'd give us your time but a place that i wanted to to take this to start off and i've I don't think I've really ever asked you this question before because I think in the past we've talked about consciousness, the pineal gland and stuff like that. And I know this question's sort of related, but it's, it's, I think it's a, it comes at it from a different angle. And I wanted to ask you the question, why as a species on this planet, why do you think we're drawn to ask the biggest questions about life in general? Well, I would argue that probably the vast majority of human beings don't. Hmm. I mean, that's the thing I've discovered is that there is a, a small minority of people that ask the massive questions, but most people just happily exist in the received world. The term that is normally used is, um, I call them uh, electromagnetic chauvinists. <laughs> These are people that believe that what they see is what really exists, when of course we know that we only see a very small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. But on top of that, there is this lack of inquiry, there's this lack of ever sitting back and thinking, what exactly am I? I'm a I'm something perceiving something. Why am I here? Why is there something rather than nothing? And I think this is throughout the generations. This is what philosophers have always been about. Philosophy asks the big questions. And because we now in the wonderful position that science can start to ask some of the big philosophical questions as well. And indeed science, particularly quantum physics, are moving subtly into, into philosophy anyway. It's funny though, because um, I love that by the way. And it's funny because, I mean, I'm actually seeing the opposite in a sense. I mean, I'm, I mean, we're at a conference today where more and more people, I know this is a very, very focused conference and it, it draws in that, that, that type of person who is asking questions. But at the same time, I mean, in, um, in my day-to-day -day life, I've been sort of interacting with many different people from all um, sort of areas of life and sort of, sort of see it. And every now and again, if you do, if you do sort of give them a little bit, just a little, a little nugget, they will be, they will, are, are more willing to engage than you actually think. Yeah. But I think there's some sort of, I don't know, there's some sort of maybe stigma around society in general where they think they're a bit tentative to actually just engage in that sort of conversation. The, the problem is, I think, it's the educational system, and I'm not criticising the educational system because it's very, very good. But what it does is it's very much stuck within the, the, the present-day paradigm of material reductionism. And, of course, material, material reductionism effectively says that all that exists is solid matter. And things, and that's it. And anything that is, is spiritual or anything that is non-physical is nonsense. But of course, most of us dream every night. Most of us, we are self-conscious beings. Our consciousness isn't located in space and time. Whether it's generated by the brain, there's a big debate about that. But it's the, the general idea, and it's something that I discovered many, many years ago when I was at university and the years before, because in those days, in the 1970s, there was very much this, this kind of idea of positivism. The idea that um, in terms of psychology, for instance, there was no inner consciousness and you could actually understand how human beings thought by programming pigeons to do things or salivating dogs and these kind of things and Vygotsky. And it is only in recent years there's been a realisation that these are not the answers to everything. We know that 93% of the universe is missing. And we don't know what it is. We call it dark matter, we call it dark energy, but we don't know what it is. And all these things now becoming more and more into the, the zeitgeist, the more coming uh, for normal people to question. For instance, I always find it quite fascinating when I do events and I do debates with skeptics. And usually after we've had a debate and a discussion, we'll go out for a drink afterwards. 
And the amount of times that those sceptics, when we had a few drinks, will turn around and say, yeah, no, I don't believe in anything you, you write about or anything, but I did have a very strange thing happen to me. And I always turn around to them and I say, well, why doesn't that, why doesn't that change your worldview? Well, it was an hallucination or it was, it was brought about by alcohol or it was brought about by drugs or it was just me misunderstanding the circumstances. And then I turn around to them and say, do you genuinely believe that explains it? And without exception, they'll say no, in which case my reaction then is, well, why don't you write about these things? And they say the same thing. I have academic tenure. If I'm seen to be writing about these things in any way, I will lose my job or my credibility. And I'll very quickly give an example of just how bad this is. A few years ago, um, Brian Josephson, who's one of the few, li few living British people who actually has um, a Nobel Prize to his name, if he invented something called Josephson Junctions, and a few years ago, there was a stamp collection going to be coming out of famous British scientists who'd won the Nobel Prize. There was a big furore, and they decided they wouldn't put him on stamps, purely and simply because he does research into ESP. This guy is one of the world's leading quantum physicists and a Nobel Prize winner, but he's still ostracized because he has the temerity to just ask the questions we ask. Mm -hmm. do, you, do, you think, do you think that people, because this is what I see, I mean, Fundamentally, I think the bigger questions in life. I think it's who we truly are. And I think we do. I think we're gonna we're gonna get to a point in life where you either ask them now, or you be, or there will be a time in life where you'll be forced to ask, ask and sort of forced to address some questions. Yeah. Do, do you feel that as well? That regardless of whether people try and engage in them now, there'll be a point in your life, whether it's on your deathbed or whatever oh, it is, yeah. you'll be forced to engage in. Well, the classic example of this is even Alexander, who was an American neurosurgeon who had um, viral meningitis, I think it was, and he, he effectively nearly died. And while he was dying, he had a complete, full-blown near-death experience. And in the near-death experience, it was very, very similar to the subjects we're talking about in this conference in Breaking Convention. It was very much similar to ayahuasca experiences. It was very similar to dimethyltryptamine experiences. And in one of the sequences, he found himself on the wings of a huge butterfly. And there was a young woman talking to him. And the young, young woman had particularly coloured eyes, particularly interesting coloured eyes. So when he actually came back and survived the near-death experience, he got talking to his parents and he described this young woman. It was his sister who had died and he didn't know she existed. Now again, that's knowledge. That's bringing back knowledge from, a set, from supposedly an hallucinatory situation. But in the hallucinatory situation, he's bringing back knowledge that is external to his own subconscious. So how can that be? And this convinced him totally. And I believe that everybody, as soon as you have an extraordinary experience, everything changes. The problem is you can't tell other people because other people, because it's experiential. And of course, again, I argue very regularly, the word empirical means from experience. So you've had an empirical experience that proves to you that there is a reality behind this reality. And as soon as you go there and as soon as you realize that, everything is off the table. More people need to have extraordinary experiences. Yeah, really, they really do as well. I can't, honestly, I really resonate with what you're saying there. I wanted to ask you a question of, so, I mean, in the past, you've, you've, you've wrote books about um, out-of-body out experience. You've wrote books about consciousness. You've wrote a book with Irvin Lozanzo. You've wrote many different books that, that cover native experiences, many different topics. And just like you were saying, we're talking about there, people having these subjective experiences that, that really do sort of change their life forever. Have you ever questioned why, as a species, we actually have the ability to to alter our re reality? I don't even know what alter our reality is in a way, but just basically enter these sort of 
these tunnels of experience, whether it's out-of-body experience, deja vu, lucid dreaming, psychedelics, whatever it is, have you questioned why we actually, what is the purpose of that within this, in this reality? If, if the argument is, and I'm becoming more and more to this belief, that this is some form of simulation, and we're existing in a simulation, there is a reality outside of the simulation. And under, cer- under certain circumstances, uh, human consciousness, whatever the perceiver is in the head, can actually, or wherever the perceiver is ultimately located, can see beyond. It's what I call the pleroma, the reality behind this reality. And again, if you read my books, I'm very precise in the terms I use. I don't just pull these, these, these terms out of, the, out of the air. The pleroma is very much from Gnostic belief systems. It's the, the other reality, the reality you glimpse in dreams and everything else as well. And indeed, in my latest book, um, the, uh, the Hidden Universe, one of the things I'm discussing there is when people have these experiences of other realities and other entities, what is the nature of the entities that they encounter? What are these beings? Because they seem to have their own motivations. They seem to not just be a, a figment of our imaginations. Now, your question was, why is it that human beings have these extraordinary experiences and what does it tell us about reality? Well, it means we're perceivers. And all it means is some of us, our doors of perception are are, are wider or are more open. Or as William Blake said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, we'd see the universe as it really is infinite. But we 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 are caught within the caves of our cavern. And we are trapped within what our normal senses present to us. Now again, Aldous Huxley and philosophers like C.D. Broad and Henri Bergson always argue that the brain is an attenuator. The brain is there to take out information. It's not there to give us more information. It's the opposite. Its role is to ensure that we have sufficient information in order to allow us to exist within whatever this is, whatever the simulation is. But on ordinary circumstances, when the brain attenuator is not working, it's when people take uh, hallucinogenic substances and theogens and things like this. The doors of perception are blasted open. The brain is no longer an attenuator and we're seeing the universe as it really is. But we need to, we need to have this kind of watered-down version of reality presented to us in order for us to function. Now, it could be that the ones, the, those of us who are interested in these subjects are by our very nature... I'm not saying we're more advanced, that's the wrong term, that's a very dismissive term of other people and I wouldn't like to do that. But there are certain people who see things that other people don't. People who, who experience synchronicities all the time, like the synchronicity that just happened and to that was us. Wild, by the way. Would you care to explain just what happened here? Yeah, yeah. So it's not just me telling yeah, you Yeah, of course. Story. So basically, we obviously had, me and you had a podcast planned to do a podcast. Obviously, I've naturally just sort of been, this, this, we're in a huge area, so there's loads of people thousands of people walking around and I've naturally just sort of walked past and the second I walk past you you're actually mentioning my name yes which is absolutely which is wild. extraordinary when you think there are 1500 delegates here we're over we're spread over a large university campus there are people everywhere I happen to mention the name of the person who was doing this interview who happened to just be walking past as I said it. Now, these kind of things, people will say, oh, it's it's just coincidence. How many times do these things happen before we realize there is significance to them? Now, again, Wolfgang Pauli, the quantum physicist, the guy of Pauli's exclusion principle, he wrote a book with um, um, Carl Gustav Jung 
on synchronicity because he actually did a, a model, a physics model of what synchronicities are and that they mean something. You know, okay, there are the times when, you know, you, there are just simple coincidences, but there are embedded synchronicities and they happen all the time. I mean, I could list so many that have happened to me only in the recent weeks and there's more and more of them happening now. And people argue when the synchronicities start to happen, it means that you're on the right path. The universe is somehow messaging you to say, the universe is now melding itself to your perceptions. Because if there is an argument that this reality is a simulation and the simulation is being created effectively by you by collapsing something called the wave function, because effectively without you observing it, the external universe is literally a probability wave. It is a probability wave and the act of observation or the act of measurement collapses subatomic particles, which of course are the building blocks of everything we perceive, into solid points of matter. And it's the act of observation that does that. So you're looking at me now, I'm looking at you. Effectively, we are creating each other within our own phaneron, which is what um, uh, Charles Stuart Pierce, the American philosopher, called it. It's the, the world that you create around you. Now, if you are creating this world around you, and everybody else around you is creating their worlds. All that happens is your world, Dan's world, and Anthony's world are now overlapping. So we are sharing like a Venn diagram. And it's the barriers that overlap, which is our consensual reality within this point. But when we walk away from each other, we then go into our other alternate realities, where we then interface with other human beings, and we get involved in their worldviews. But effectively, if we are creating this ourselves, there's not at all surprising that coincidences take place. Because this is your creation, this is your simulation, this is your computer game of your life. And if you've lived it many, many times, you will see things and patterns within it because you're creating it as you go along. Do you, do you think them patterns, are, them patterns are in place? Because it seems to me, like I'm, I'm really, I'm with you, I'm completely with you, that them, all these are different occurrences, they can't just be coincidences. Yeah. And even like go to the bigger aspect, I'm sure everyone's, everyone's gone to sleep at night and had a dream and they've had something within that dream that's guided them in a certain direction, yeah. with maybe without them, without them knowing it as well, but there, it, there will be a pattern within that if they do focus on it, that, that, that is some, a part of that element of that dream actually trying to shift them or show them an, an element of themselves. But I keep asking is it because it's it's just like that they've all these different aspects of synchronicity they've all been just placed just just right just to sort of to nudge you in a certain direction and I wanted to ask you a question from that is, is oh the more the more this the more like I'm, the more I'm on my journey and the more I'm speaking to more great minds like yourself it seems like we're in a we're in something immersed in something to learn to yeah. to find ourselves but at the same time you have all these disparities between what's real and what's not real because the physical body itself cannot really it kind of cope with it all of what's going on very wise yeah it is um i know we discussed it last time when we did the interview but just to recap my overall hypothesis is called cheating the ferryman and in cheating the ferryman it's been refined over the years you know i i'm not one of these people that has an idea and sticks by it you know I, the more i learn the more i read the more people i interface with the more papers i read the more academic papers i believe i read i change my ideas or i i they develop yeah, that's you know what you it's do. iterative it develops but effectively what i argue is that we are living you, we are all existing within a computer an analogous to a computer simulation of our own lives and of course, if you recall in any computer game, any third person RPG game, what is taking place is that you have a quest. There's a quest that you have to fulfill. 
You know, your on-screen sprite, your on-screen character has a quest like Lara Croft has to get through the caves to find the treasure. This is what we're doing in the game. The game of life, what we're doing here in what I call the Bohemian IMAX, is that you will live your life many, many times and you will follow every logical path that you can follow in that life, just like Connors does in the movie Groundhog Day. And what you do is, over many, many iterations, you will eventually live the perfect life. You will eventually do everything right. We all make mistakes. Imagine a scenario that you can go back and you cannot do that small thing that you did. Because I know it's happened in my life many times. You know, when you do something, you realize, oh my God, there's no going back now. Mm. Everything now changes from this moment onwards and I don't want it to change. Imagine a scenario that you have something inside your head that knows that you made this mistake last time before, which is your game player, the daemon. And it kind of warns you and says, don't do this. It might warn you in dreams. It might warn you via synchronicities. But it's trying to make you not make that decision again. Just like Laura Croft in the game, when she's going to go into a room with a monster and she suddenly finds, imagine that Laura Croft on the screen is somehow sentient. She suddenly finds that for some reason she walks away from that room and she doesn't know why. I'd argue the game player has made it do it, but it happens to us in life all the time. Mm. We meet people in our lives and we know them. We've known them all our lives. We've been waiting for this person to come into our lives. And we see other people in our lives and we think, I've got to avoid them because they're dangerous to me. This is the game of life. And this is what it's all about. It's in order for us to evolve and learn, just as Connors does in Groundhog Day. We learn from our experiences. We learn from our mistakes. And this is why I argue against such concepts as reincarnation. Because in reincarnation, what is happening is you die and you're reborn as somebody else in another part of the world with no memories of your past life. How can that be developmental? How can you, if you do not remember the mistakes you made last time, how can you ever learn by them? I argue that yes, it is like reincarnation, but it's reincarnation as you. And the evidence is in one phenomenon, deja vu or deja vu. If you have a deja vu sensation at the moment, so you suddenly have a deja vu sensation about this conversation, you're Dan sitting here on a rainy August day at the University of Greenwich wearing a black top, stand, sitting next to a table with a mic in front of you. You're not looking down at clothes that are a medieval person. You're not looking down at clothes as if you're, you're somebody in India or anywhere else. Mm. You're doing it as you. So that to me suggests that a deja vu sensation is because you've lived this life before. Because you have this recognition and uh, a percentage of uh, deja vu sensations are precognitive, so you know what's going to happen next. How can you know what's going to happen next if you've not lived this before? If, this, if the future has yet to happen, how can you know what's going to happen? It flies in the face of science, it flies in the face of our scientific model, but nevertheless people experience this all the time. Precognitive deja vus are very, very, very common. I love that by the way, powerful stuff. And a question I want to ask you is, is do you, because this is something that I have to try to toy with, me, toy with myself. Because to me, it seems like there's, the, the, whole, the, the, the concept of life itself seems so multifaceted. Like, yes, it could, be, it could be a simulation, but at the same time within the simulation, there's also like, because cause where I think a lot of these arguments, people are on different sides of the fence and stuff, whatever it is, it seems to be, and someone says, no, natural evolution's real. No, we're living in a simulation. What, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the theory is, 
But if you look at all them different areas, see if you look at natural evolution, yes, there is solid evidence. Mm. But if you look in the simulation, there's also solid evidence. And it's like all these polarities are all going on intertwined at the same time. Yeah, because they're not contradictions. Mm-hmm. This is the curious thing, you know, that, that why, why would evolution necessarily be contradictory to the idea of a simulation argument? Because a simulation argument is also evolving. Mm-hmm. You know, you evolve within the simulation. And because there is a greater argument to this, and it's, I contributed a chapter to a book on pandeism um, a few years ago. And pandeism is the concept that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. And that in the final analysis, we are moving towards the collective unconscious, what Jung would call the collective unconscious, the, the kind of the, the, the world spirit that we're all part of. So you and I are effectively the same entity experiencing itself. And there's a, there's a wonderful argument for this, and I, I really love it. I mean, I'm not a religious person, um, but effectively, just imagine the scenario that you're God and you're this infinite being and you're going to live forever. You've always lived, you've always existed. It must be bloody boring. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Yeah. You create a universe and you populate that universe with sentient beings. And what you then do is you embody yourself within that universe and you live everybody's lives through their eyes without knowing who you are. There is a, there is a, a, a philosophical point put forward by Plato and the Neoplatonists and it's actually called anamnesis. Amnesis is forgetting. Anamnesis is the loss of forgetting. And loss of forgetting is realizing that you are part of a greater something. But most of us are suffering from amnesia. And of course, this comes right back to Plato's cave. Uh, And if we get the chance, we can talk a little bit about an event I did with Professor David Luke, who's one of the guys that are involved in breaking convention here, that we did a few months ago at um, Drakelow Tunnels in the Midlands here in the UK. But what they were, we were trying to do there was to try to get people to think out of the box, to think, why do I believe that everything that my senses are telling me is a one-to-one relationship between what is out there and what is inside me? You know, because the only thing you know, as I said before, is that you're something experiencing something, but you don't know what that you're experiencing is the same as other people. We, we have no way of knowing whether the colour red is consistent with all of us because we can, we can never describe them. We have the mystery of what's called qualia, the intensity of pain. I know people criticise me over this, but I will stand, stand strongly on this. Pain does not exist. If there were no sens- sensitive beings and no nerves existing in the world, there would be no pain. Mm. Pain is a qualia. That's why sometimes you can people break their leg and can walk for hours because they're trying to save a child's life. It's because they can switch the pain off. Pain is just a sensation. It's the nerves, it's the brain reacting to certain chemicals stimulated by certain nervous nerve, nerve stimuli that is recreated as pain. And when I get into the, this point, I always say to people, and some, some people get it and some people don't, and I ask the question, why is pain painful? What is it about pain that is uncomfortable? And it's so difficult to describe because we don't know why it is, but it's not nice. But it's very similar without being crude to an orgasm. The actual pain is, you know, it's not dissimilar, but one is extremely pleasurable and one is extremely unpleasant. But there's no objective reasons as to why that sensation should be unpleasant, if that makes sense. It's like the way I can see it is in my head is, because is, 
I'm thinking about the the idea of belief. That's what I'm thinking of. So, so you know how the placebo effect works. Yes. Like so, you 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 believe that you're going to heal yourself in in biochemically your chemicals and your body start changing you heal yourself and it's like the analogy of the you ever heard of the analogy of the bee where it says so there's, there's a bee where so you know like aerodynamically a bee shouldn't so be able um, to sort of bumblebee. Yeah, yeah shouldn't be able to fly so basically there's a there's an analogy where it says so if that now if you take that bee and it was to go to university see it was going to study aerodynamics and stuff yes. like that would that bee come out of that university would it be walking or would it be, would it fly out of there the this is a very good point, and again, it comes and down. I just, I just, sorry, I was going to say, yeah, and I think that, what I don't know, if, I'm sort of trying to relate to what you're trying to say, but it seems like this whole, this whole thing that we're in is dependent on, on a, on a sense of you thinking it's going to happen. Yeah, it's something in my new book that's out in December. I call the egregorial. Um, an egregore is um, a Greek term. And it effectively means something that is mind-created, but it's in the external world. Um, there can be egregores, and it's, it's discussed in black magic and everything else as well, so there's going to be nothing new to the, 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 the people out there who are interested in magic and various other things. But it's the idea that you can create a thought form. Now, there was a very famous experiment that took place in the early 1970s at the University of Toronto, where a group of people decided to actually create um, a, 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 a spirit, a being, a person that had died, who had never existed in reality. They literally made this person up. And they created, and they collectively worked on the idea of the background story of this young man who was living in 16th, 17th century England, who committed suicide because he lost his, the love of his life and everything else as well, a guy called Philip. And over a period of time, this Philip started to manifest. It started to manifest in a Ouija board. They started, they had table tapping, they had table moving and everything. But they created it. It wasn't real. But there's a concept like tulpas. These are kind of thought forms that can be created external and become independent of people. There's a guy called, a lady called Alexander Neal, who was a French explorer in the 1920s in Tibet, who created one of these. She created a monk. Her and her group created this monk that used to follow them round when they were, they were wandering around Tibet, and then it started getting malevolent, and it started to have manifestations of its own. And in the new book, what I'm suggesting is that we, we can create the world around us. A huge egregores, Nazism is a huge egregore, communism, these are all collective belief systems that are greater than the people who believe in them. A football crowd. Mm. A football crowd has far, there's something that happens, mm. and groups of people believe the same things. They're egregores. Now, to me, this is evidence, again, the way in which thought and what we are, our educational system, and you hit the nail on the head there, there is something called the Saper-Whorf hypothesis. And again, um, there was a movie that came out about three or four years ago, Arrival, was it? Um, where there were all these spaceships appeared all around the yeah, world Arrival, and they were trying yeah. to communicate with them. Yeah. That was dealing with the Saper-Whorf hypothesis. Most people wouldn't be aware of that. but uh, That was just to break it down. That was where the, the woman she was struggling to try and find a form of communication. Communication yeah. with the, 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 the elephant-like creatures, yeah. the, the cellophods or whatever they were. And the idea is, again, that language models the way we perceive the world. We learn a language and it's through the language that the world is modelled around us. For example, if our culture didn't have a particular term for red, but sort of shaded into different areas of the, the spectrum, we may have different ideas. And the reason this was, it's quite intriguing, because I think it was um, uh, Edmund Saper, who was the Saper of Saper Wharf, 
And I think it was him that noticed that Hopi children, uh, the, the, um, indigenous the indigenous American people of um, Arizona, the children would select things. They'd be asked to put together intelligence tests. And they were asked to put things together in certain ways. And whereas English speakers would actually put them together in terms of color, they put things together in terms of shape. And the reason they did that was the verbs that go with the nouns for the things change dependent upon the shape of an object. And he thought, this is interesting. Does this mean that language in some way influences the way we think? So language influences education. Religious beliefs do. You know, in my new book, I have a whole section on what I call religious egregorials of people who see the Virgin Mary people who have very, very strong religious beliefs and everything they see reinforces that religious belief. Non-religious people think they're strange, but it could be that within their phaneron, within their worldview, everything reinforces that belief and they can't understand why non-religious people don't believe their belief. And it's because we are speaking in different languages. We are creating different worlds dependent upon those belief systems. And is it collectively here today? You know, the atmosphere here today is electric. Mm -hmm. And it's because everybody here thinks the same way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, something that's coming to my mind that actually I thought about this ages ago and I did want to propose it here. So, and it's very tight to what you see in there. But um, I've, I've like, as, as you know, on this podcast, uh, I'm looking into many different topics all across different spams. And the more looking at different topics, the more these things that you're seeing and everyone's seeing all do eventually bleed together. But anyway, I was looking into ancient cultures of the past. In many of the, the great sort of researchers of ancient cultures, they always talk about how if you want to understand cultures of the past, you have to become one of them. You have to, you have to sort of t adopt their sense of reality. But what's interesting to me as well is, and I've never asked you this question about in reg what you actually feel about the ancients in regards to consciousness, because... If you do, the more you dig into them, the more that they're always talking about these altered states of consciousness. The talk, they don't talk about deja vu and um, all these different states, whatever it is, this different sense of reality as the way we talk about it. Like they, we call it sort of other, mm. whereas the, for them it was just, it was just, it was that it was just. Do you understand just what I mean? Is, yeah, yeah it just is. It's. Um, I think there is this kind of cultural arrogance that Western culture has that because we live in a technological society, therefore we are more advanced than, than more traditional cultures. But of course, 99.9% .9 of us couldn't design a printed circuit board. We don't know how electricity works. We don't know how radio waves work and how they transfer messages. So we ride on the back of others that have developed the science and therefore it makes us feel more important. Mm -hmm. But I would guarantee that any Westerner, we live, we live enclosed all the time. We are now in a room, whereas our ancestors and people in indigenous cultures live outside. They are far more in tune with nature. They sleep under the stars. They, they feel the earth under their bare feet. They smell things that we don't perceive. And their worldview is different, but it doesn't mean it is in error. They are just as rational, you know, our, our ancestors way back in my new book, I have a section on cave paintings. There's a, I mean, for instance, there's been recently a group of cave paintings found in, in northern India. Yeah, I've seen them really good. And really incredible. And what these, these cave paintings show are, are aliens, for example. And I'm intrigued by all this because we, we, 
We need to learn from these cultures. We need to learn from shamanic worldviews. Of course, you know, sometimes these explanations are put forward by people who can't explain. And our science has explained a lot. But we've now discovered quantum physics and we've realized that we don't understand a great deal about anything. And we are standing around congratulating ourselves when, in fact, probably in 5,000 years, people will look back at this period and say, how could they not see? Why did they blind themselves so much to the evidence that the secret of everything is consciousness? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if we have if we have sort of a, a spiritual sense, I mean, I don't know if you know that's the right word, but I'm just saying that so people can understand it. A sense of something else, which I, I believe that maybe some ancient cultures of the past did have it. Do you feel that, I mean, you were just describing there how they were more sort of, like we leave these insulated experiences now where we don't, we don't sort of integrate with that that larger reality sort of say do you think that we could be sort of de-evolving as some sort of spiritual sense sense or or knowing whatever you want to call it i think yeah people talk about things like ascension and things now i i, I don't tend to go for these things as you know um but there definitely seems to be we are in very very curious times at the moment very very curious times and there does seem to be more and more people waking up to the kind of things we're talking about and I've noticed over recent years it's becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and it's as if people are starting to reject this materialist worldview that I'm, I'm defined by my belongings I'm defined by my, the size of my car or the size of my house whereas really what we should be defined by is our empathy and our caring for other people and occurring for the environment you know because we're heading towards absolute disaster at the moment unless we change and we have to change the consumer society is dead so what where does that leave us and i think it leaves us moving into again it's a very dangerous term but into a more spiritual worldview that can encompass science and my my role here i believe my role here or my role if there's a role or something that sounds incredibly <laughs> arrogant but the idea that we are here to facilitate using science to change the paradigm, to change us. Do you, yeah, sorry, I was going to just quickly ask you, because I've quickly thought of something. Do you, ever, do you ever think that we have to change, do you think we have to change, adopt a new form of science? And, and what I mean by that is maybe, maybe not a new, a new form of science, maybe just a different approach. Because at the minute in life, as you know, science has this, I would say, this one-dimensional approach. But maybe to get to the crust of what this is, what this is, just like I explained before about how yeah, these researchers say to become, an, to be understand how the ancients built these structures or lived the way they lived, you had to become one of them. Yeah. Do, we, do you ever have a question, do we have to maybe change from a one-dimensional approach into something else? I think so. I think, you know, we, we, have to, we have to accept that materialist reductionist science has created so much and has helped humanity develop phenomenally. And just to explain, materialist reductionism is simply the philosophy that in order to understand it, you have to take it apart. It is as easy as that. You find a radio sitting there and you don't know what it is, you take it apart, you take the valves out, you do all the bits and pieces, and by doing that, you will find out how it works. That works to a certain extent, except, for instance, if I took your brain and took it apart to find Dan in there, I'd never find you. 
because in the final analysis, all you don't I find did, much in there. Because <laughs> all I would find is electricity reacting with chemicals. Mm. That's all I would find. There's no Danness in there. Dan is somewhere, but it's not there. So we science has to just realise that there is more than just the physical. And what I'm hoping is that with the developments. I mean, I was just been talking. I just had lunch with Professor Bernard Carr, who's a cosmologist, about various issues of mutual interest and of course the areas that are you know in areas of cosmology now there's some fantastic things being done you know the idea of dark energy and dark matter and what's called virtual particles now virtual particles are an integral part of of what even quantum physics works they have to have these things called virtual particles but they are literally they they come in and out of existence these things come from somewhere exist for a billionth of a second and go back into nothingness but they must exist somewhere you know, these are all huge anomalies. And believe me, if anybody out there is thinking that people like um, Professor Brian Cox has got it sussed, uh, he hasn't, and he knows he hasn't. And anybody who actually attempts to read some of his books, such as his book, um, Everything That Can Happen Will Happen, and you'll find that Brian is not exactly quite as arrogant or as know-all he is. He knows that there's issues here. He knows that we are at first base in understanding how reality works, but he's a popularist scientist and he has to put forward this scientific viewpoint, we know everything. Yeah. They don't, but science, this is what science is about. Science is trying to discover. So we work with science in order to discover the greater mysteries of what is taking place. And the only way we can do that is to get science breaking out of this, I can only believe in the physical and the here and the now. And if somebody has extraordinary experiences, they're just hallucinations. I call this the labeling theory of science. I've probably mentioned this to you before. You know, yeah. they give it a nice label and they've, 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 they've explained it. Yeah. Nobody can explain hallucinations. Are you, are you finding, because I mean, I'm speaking to all these different types of people. I'm, and just to give a quick example, obviously I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to Tom Campbell, I'm speaking to somebody else in a completely different area. And the, the more, more I have these sort of conversations, the more that all the things that you used together collectively all talking about all seem to, to dissect and interlink when you're when you're sort of um, mixing with all these different people like you just said you had dinner with someone before are you finding that your theories even if they are coming from different points of view points of view that in a in a weird in a weird way they're still their points are colliding with yours as well and making a lot, a lot of sense yeah colliding is the wrong term i would think they're probably the complementing yeah complementing. you know there is an old phrase and i love it you know that uh, you know there are many paths to the top of the mountain but the view from the top is still the same and we're all coming from different viewpoints but i think my major concern at the moment in terms of many of the researchers in this area is there's too much siloism and there's too much meism there's too much the cult of the personality um, we're not working together because everybody's got their own little niche and they're all trying to to outdo each other. And that's not my philosophy. I work yeah. with anybody. Um, I also think there's grave danger that there's an awful lot of sky pilots in this world of ours. There's an awful lot of charlatans. There's an awful lot of, I'm not going to use the word bull, deep bleep bleep, <laughs> but there are, and who are literally there just to make a quick buck. And they destroy it for the rest of us. How, how do we how do we get them minds together though? Because I've always questioned on this. I mean, I've said this on many podcasts before. As I've always said, I would love to get have obviously Anthony Peake. I said Tom Campbell and some other great minds all in a room together. How how can we? I know the world's vast and stuff, but it, I think we need to be at a point in time where I mean, if you were going to create a super team and you were going to sort of have a board of people who were going to because 
fundamentally as we as we know we're both interested in the biggest questions of life and as a civilization what's more important than the biggest questions of life i would love to just get a room together and have five or six great minds like yourself tom campbell ever who it is get together and like study these things together and, and share your concepts because there's so many similarities and there are and the danger the dangers i think will that will be well the first point is that you know i'm, I'm very careful not using the word theory um scientifically you know at best my ideas are a hypothesis and probably if you had to be absolutely accurate they're speculation nothing more um whereas other people create their their huge theories and yeah, they're, 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 they're very good, but you'll find that sometimes in the, er- the areas of difference are the areas where you have the conflict, and that is where the dangers lie. I would genuinely believe that I'm one of the few writers out there and one of the few thinkers out there that I don't play that game. You know, if somebody comes along to me and says that I have this hypothesis and this is how it works, and then I look into it and I find that the science seems to stack up mm-hmm. and... The, I'll, I'll, I'll move towards that kind of point position. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that my ideas are better than anybody else's. I'm trying to seek answers. I'm an ordinary Joe. I'm just like you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a working class kid from Liverpool or Merseyside. You know, I'm nothing special. Um, it's just I seem to be able to ask, ask the right questions or seem to ask the questions. Um, so I think we do need to all work together. And indeed, there are groups of us. I mean, I think, for instance, again, waxing lyrical here about breaking convention, but this is one of the greatest exchanges of ideas in the world. And it is my favourite event. I look forward to this. You know, two years is too long to wait for these events because it is absolutely wonderful. You know, and the electricity here is great. And you see people just debating and throwing ideas out. But what I'm trying to do with my work is I, I involve as many writers as I can in my work. And we share ideas. And this is, this is how we're going to break through. This is how one day it's all going to click. I feel that we've all got bits of a, a jigsaw puzzle. We're all sitting there and we've all got one piece. And one day we'll all go, oh, touche. But the question is, if we then do that, we then sussed it. And does does the, the simulation then evaporate, or do Oof. the do the do the simula- the people who created the simulation pull the plug because they said we can't have Sims actually knowing that they're Sims, Oof. or is that the experiment? I think we'll leave it. Let's leave it there for people <laughs> that actually question that themselves. Absolutely, as a powerhouse. Thank you so much. Thank Brilliant. you. Thanks, cool conversation. Boom, boom, boom! Beautiful people. I loved how Anthony at the end of the conversation they asked the question and proposed. I loved how when guests propose questions, not only to myself but to you, the listeners, and when he said that, what he said, what happens when everyone realises that this is sort of a simulation? (laughs) Everyone realises that this is sort of just a game. It really is wild to think about. I mean, imagine if, um, who knows, if it is a simulation, if it is just a game, and we sort of do sort of realize and everyone all the little all of us little characters within this thing that we're immersed in all do just realize it is some sort of crazy ride what does happen then and that'll be interesting to think i'll let you stew on that in your own minds now what would happen if we if everyone does realize or we do figure out that this is a simulation or some sort of video game in a in a child's bedroom <laughs> that would be funny <laughs> some some um some some in very intelligent and and um sick-minded child for sure <laughs> but anyway thanks so much for listening to the conversation 
like I mentioned, the, the Ascend Podcast Retreat is now launched. If you can, please head over, check it out. If you if it's something that's aligned with your heart and you're feeling a pull to do it, please check it out. Like I mentioned, if you have any questions, any queries, please reach out to me and I'll answer all your questions. Really looking forward to seeing you guys at the retreat. I know it's going to be a powerful experience, one that you will never, ever forget. As always, if you can find it in your heart also, check out the Patreon page. That always will be and is still the best place to support the podcast. So anyway, I love you all and I'm looking forward to sharing some of the new podcast conversations that I've been recording over the last couple of weeks. Really are going to be powerful. I've really tried up the game with some of the conversations that I've gone into. As I mentioned, I'm always constantly evolving and sometimes, like I say, I have to backdate these conversations to keep giving you guys amazing content every single week. And I'm constantly evolving. I'm trying to become better. I'm trying to ask better questions. And I do feel that some of the conversations that are coming up are have gone to another level again. I know you guys keep see, keep saying that these conversations are already at a good level. But I am striving. I'm striving to ask better questions, ask more sort of thoughtful and deeper questions and have very and more rich and engaging conversations and topics. So I'm looking forward to sharing them with you all. And just to play this podcast out, as I always do, this is a really cool song. I think it's really fitting for the conversation with Anthony. It's a song called by an art band called Time Cop. And the song is called Come Back. And it really is an interesting tune because every time I listen to this, it really reminds me of sort of a bit like Stranger Things. If you, I don't know if you guys have seen that on Netflix, but it reminds us a bit of that where sort of our sort of younger selves are chasing the mysteries of the universe. And I'm sure you will relate to this tune anyway. So enjoy this song by Time Cop. Peace out. Mm-hmm.